Speak the truth, even if it leads to your death. Safeguard the helpless and do no wrong. This is your oath. now listening to the number one philosophy podcast in the world according to nobody but the four of us in this room sitting around this table this is corrupting the youth episode three the gaze i am your host dr nethery and i'm joined as always by my three brilliant co-hosts i'm corinne i'm valeria and i'm aaron well hello everybody before we actually get to our topic for this episode what i just want to go around the table and see what y'all learned this week that was interesting or the last couple weeks since the last time we recorded well, actually, today I was watching this uh, video uh, that Vice made, and it's from 2012, but I Googled it, and bride kidnapping in Kyrgyzstan is huge. Bride kidnapping. Yes. Jeez. Mm-hmm. They kidnap them, and like Wait, right after on, getting on, married? Hold on, or hold like, on, hold on. Okay. Yeah. This, is, this, is, this is ambiguous. Are we kidnapping brides, or are we okay. kidnapping people <laughs> to become brides? The latter. Okay. Yes. Kidnapping women. Val and I had the same question. I could see it on her face. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, it's like, it's insane because it's huge. They, they claim that because it was a tradition that there's no way to get rid of it. And everyone loves it. Like families are behind it. Everyone loves it. Yeah. I'm sure the brides really love that. Jeez. (laughs) Well, you realize everyone is limited. Yeah. Like everyone that like. (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) yeah but it was wild the the dude who was um reporting he literally went to kyrgyzstan and he went to this family's uh yurt celebration for what was going to be the kidnapping so he was there with them doing this interview and he was with the guys when they were deciding how they're going to kidnap her who's the driver who's this who's that and it was just it was it's insane they hold a party for that they have the wedding the same day that they kidnap the bride they literally kidnap her they take her there and the she's held by the aunts or mothers whoever um the woman in the family she's held by them and they try and convince her that everything's going to be great but they literally force her into marriage Sometimes she's a stranger, sometimes they've been friends for a while, but a lot of times it ends in suicide. That's wild. Yes. Was there any any upside to this documentary or was it just Um, everything's terrible? Everything's pretty terrible. Everything's pretty terrible. Yeah, and I looked it up. Um, Apparently it is illegal, but I don't think that anyone cares about that. Illegal with quotation marks? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's wild. What What do you got, Val? Not that. Um, <laughs> mine was just, I love baby goats, so that was just going to be mine. My fact. Um, there's a type of goat. Fact, goats are great. <laughs> that is what I learned. Valid. Uh, but no, there's a type of goat, and it's called, like, it's known as a fainting goat, where, like, you know, when a goat, yeah, yeah, oh my gosh, okay. If they're, like, startled or something, or, like, by, like, not, like, uh, sudden movements, or, like, not loud noises, they're, like, faint. Like, they'll just go, like, 
whoosh and faint and it's so cute and like a little beat they'll stay there stay like that for a while but it actually makes their legs strong like their little whatever legs joints? stronger yeah joints stronger yeah interesting really yeah how well they they go into it looks like rigor mortis like their legs straighten up and they like turn into boards and they fall on their backs and they stay like that for like several minutes right yeah. but like their legs are being flexed so it makes sense that that would make them Strong, <laughs> just like flexing, terrified. These you, these videos are hilarious, creature. but it's terrible. But the you people would run up to them with like an umbrella and go like, <laughs> but I don't no, understand. That. There was this video of like this little baby goat. He was just like going up a slide, but then I guess you know you slide down, and he just like got scared <laughs> and like whoop. That startled him. Yeah. <laughs> but what's the point of it? I don't understand. That's the worst defense mechanism. That could ever be, right? Go to well, I didn't read that far. I didn't read that far. <laughs> they haven't had to defend, they haven't had to defend yeah, themselves. That is that poor, poor animal. I want to know what's going your, through its head. Your feeling of abject terror is adorable. Yeah. <laughs> do it again. And we're going to stream it on YouTube over and over and over again. Watch this terrible moment. I yeah. mean, I'm into it, but <laughs> don't get me wrong. <laughs> All right, Corinne, what did you, you learn? Anything that's interesting? Um, yeah, uh, I learned that, okay, so I've been listening to a lot of, like, ghost podcasts and whatever, which has been bad, but I have been looking into, like, the actual, like, science side, like, behind, like, ghost events and stuff, and so, you know, they have the whole, like, like, the infrared and then, like, whatever, like, heat differentials and stuff, and, like, really got into the like the quantifiable side of this because I'm just like oh like ghosts like whatever because like you know I want to sleep at night but um I can't now because I'm like fully convinced that this is completely real and I'm like trying to so I don't know if it's something that I've learned I'm just on like a precipice of a new worldview in which I like acknowledge that pure evil is a real thing and pure evil. so get ready guys <laughs> who knows maybe next next two weeks I'll I'll have some communications to share with you all but i used to uh live in pittsburgh when i was doing my phd at duquesne university and kennywood is a an amusement park there and every halloween they have this thing called halloween horror nights or something like that you know like universal like or it, all yeah. these places have it and so every time i went there every year and they would always have like right in the middle of kennywood there's like a little stage with all these tables around it and every every year they would have people from the pittsburgh paranormal society <laughs> okay yeah. I like and, so they would, and so they would stand up there and i would just sit down and just watch them get heckled that was my favorite part and so one day i was sitting there and they were showing photos so i don't know if you've ever seen like paranormal stuff where they show photos and you know those like dust specks mm -hmm. that are in the photos yeah well, a lot of paranormal uh societies call those orbs yeah. and it's supposed yeah. to be like proof of like paranormal stuff as so those one person so like the dude from the pittsburgh paranormal society i mean i don't want to slander it might have been for somebody else i don't know but he projected this picture with those dust specks in it. And he was like, and these are orbs, everybody. And these are proof of paranormal activity <laughs> in this photograph. And somebody, I think it was like an older woman at the back, just yelled out, that's dust. <laughs> oh, no. He was like, no, ma'am, I'm sorry. That's not dust. Those are orbs. That's and he, like, goes and, like, he wipes activity. off the lens and it goes away. He's like, turns yeah. out it actually was dust. And that's the end of our presentation. I'm going to go cry. Oh, no. <laughs> but she yells it like another two times. <laughs> <laughs> And like the 10 other people sitting there just laughing. It was just hilarious. Oh, Poor goodness. guy. But I mean, 
there's a lot to it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm like, I, maybe that wasn't the best case that he could have made. But yeah, maybe there are better, better pictures of orbs. So I learned this week that there is a, a native biological entity to Florida. Oh. I had never known before. And I'm way into this kind of stuff. Like I'm way into cryptozoology, those sorts of things. (laughs) This isn't cryptozoology. This thing actually exists. But it's called the Florida worm lizard. Has anybody ever heard of the Florida worm lizard? No. No? It's a lizard that looks like a worm. Does it have legs? No, it has no legs. Are they legs on the inside? No. The Florida worm lizard looks like a large pink earthworm. However, it is not an earthworm or even a lizard, but an amphibian. Bainid. I have no idea how to say that. An independent suborder of the order Squamata, of which lizards and snakes are the other two suborders. So it's like in between? Yeah. Worm <gasps> lizards are specialized burrowers with scales arranged in rings that make them look like an earthworm. They vary from pale to bright pink in color, and their skin looks too big and loose for their body. <laughs> they have no limbs, <laughs> just like me. And they have no limbs and no functional eyes. Like the sand skink. Uh, The worm lizard has a lower jaw that is countersunk or recessed into the lower mouth of the head to prevent sand from getting in the mouth. Highly adapted for life underground, the eyes are covered with scales and the snout used for burrowing is wedge-shaped. And they can come up to almost a foot long. That's so cool. So it doesn't have any arms or legs, but it burrows? Yeah, describe describe the picture I'm showing to you right now, Erin. It looks like a worm with a cone head. Yeah, like almost like a little tiny lizard head on it. I mean, it's not, but like, you know when, that's like, what um, it looks like. You like put like uh, what is it called? Ew. Um, like something like Wait. string on your finger, and then like it turns purple or something. That's I've what it looks like. Oh yeah. Where have you seen one of these? Are you like, sure it wasn't just was it an earthworm? No, no, because I was just like maybe that's just like a weird worm. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> No, those those freaking exist. That's not that's real. Certified yes, fact. Yes, it is. It is. It is. Oh my god. So yeah, that's the Florida worm lizard. Hang on, I'm looking at another picture. Do they have two little feet? No. Under their head? No, they shouldn't. They're Are not supposed sure? to. Have, they're supposed to be limbless. Okay, maybe I'm maybe those like vestigialer. No, that's not. Okay, never mind. <laughs> never mind. <laughs> All right, so our theme this week is the gaze. And the gaze, or the look, is a, is a philosophical concept that's been around for a couple hundred years, but you find its first real articulations in the phenomenology of Edmund Husserl. And so in uh, The Crisis of the European Sciences, Husserl argues that the only way that I understand myself as a part of a shared objective nature, so by this he means I'm a part of, of a larger thing of which other things are parts, Husserl says we would never have that understanding of nature or our world if other people didn't look at us. So we first understand that we live in a world with other people like us by somebody looking at us. And Sartre develops this a little bit, and he's just really kind of saying what Husserl already said. But for Sartre, if someone looks at me, I am conscious of being an object. So the minute somebody looks at me, I'm, I'm kind of sucked out of my subjective mm-hmm. position, my the my perspective on the world and i see myself or i think of myself as somebody who might be able to see me it's just like that feeling of being hyper aware Mm -hmm. yeah yeah definitely yeah so like what i wanted to start off with asking is have you ever do you have an example of somebody looking at you that told you something about yourself oh i mean i've been cat called quite quite a few times so yeah i feel like that kind of yeah. yeah, yeah. So when we talk about uh, the male gaze as a modality of this uh, in a couple segments in your segment, we should remember to bring that back up, right? Because what does that tell when somebody cat calls you? What does that tell you about yourself? 
<laughs> oh my god, I look so good. Thank you so, so Okay, maybe much. I phrased that. Maybe I phrased that <laughs> no, one. But you know no, what I mean. You know no, what I mean. That's why I'm being facetious. But like, yeah, it's like you it's this feeling of like, is that really all I am to you is just like yeah, a just body like that is female figure. like identified as female. And then like if you don't say anything they're like oh like you're ugly anyway and if you do say something you're like inviting further harassment mm-hmm. so yep just like, like Marilyn Fry says even if you say yes like you're like oh my gosh and it's like like that's no that's no good mm-hmm. and then you don't want to be like screw you because yeah, then yeah, they yeah. might like chase you yeah. down and kill yeah. you <laughs> have you ever tried to figure out something about yourself just by somebody looking at you. So as a teacher, this happens to me all the time. So I'm sitting in class and I'm teaching and I look at a student and the student looks at me with a look of just abject horror or confusion (laughs) on their face. You know what I mean? That tells me that I'm, uh, something's gone wrong. I need to change what it is that I'm doing. So has that ever happened to you just like in a benign kind of way? For sure. I venture to say it happens on a daily basis. Yeah, I think it happens all the time. I just don't think that we really even realize it like i think when we're driving like we like make eye contact with like someone in the car next to you or like at a stop sign like That's i've done I this don't before make eye contact but, with people oh i love doing it and then i'm just like look away first like i'll have staring contests with like with people like in the car and i'm like i don't care that i got to this four-way stop first like you're gonna go because i'm not gonna look away um but then like this one time i had like i was in tutus like the the coffee thing and people were looking at me and like they would look at me and like look away with like almost embarrassment and I was like sort of like looking at myself to see if there was like a stain on my shirt or something mm-hmm. and there wasn't so I was like what the hell like why are people looking at me and this continued to happen and then five minutes later I realized I had like a five foot long toilet paper strand for my shoe <laughs> oh no, oh, no. <laughs> and and this was like the second week of freshman year so of course nobody I didn't know anybody nobody told me but I was like people were looking at me and I can tell there's something wrong and I like I like checked my hair like I looked at myself on Snapchat I'm like is like my makeup messed up like is there stain but I didn't think to look at my shoes because I hadn't been to the bathroom recently I literally just stepped on toilet paper that was somewhere other than a bathroom <laughs> oh, no. and it followed me around but yeah like you it's this thing like they're looking at me what <laughs> what is it like <laughs> minus uh minus asserting my dominance when i'm crossing the street oh so like what's it called so like you know cars will come really fast and me being me <laughs> for some reason i think i'm like wonder woman or something so i'll like walk really fast yeah. to get in front of it so it's slow like it's forced to like stand on its brakes <laughs> and i will look at that person like make direct eye contact <laughs> as i'm walking the street but no i'm not like i'm not like the street is like what 10 feet long or whatever so, like do you Whatever. walk faster or do you intentionally walk slower? I walk slower. Like, I I'm just like, you. I'm holding <laughs> eye contact and I'm going to walk so slow. And maybe, maybe I forgot something. So I have to go back across and cross the street again. You like check your watch. You like take yeah. a phone call. <laughs> Hold a meeting. <laughs> that rules. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, there are even, uh, there are different examples that we can think of too. So Michel Foucault takes this a little bit farther in Discipline and Punish when he talks about Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon. So Jeremy Bentham, we all are familiar with him because of uh, utilitarianism. He was one of the originators of utilitarianism, but he also wrote a book on the perfect prison and it was called the Panopticon. So just try to imagine this, this, if you will. So imagine two circles, one circle inside the other, okay? So on the inside circle is a guard tower, 
and that guard tower stretches up for a couple floors and it's got windows but all of those windows are opaque you can't see into them if you're in the guard tower you can see out but if you're outside the guard tower you can't see in okay now in that second circle on the outside are a bunch of cells prison cells you can have a couple floors of them but each one is going uh, is next to each other in a circle around the actual guard tower and so the idea is is that we can get the prisoner to mod moderate uh, his own behavior because a prison guard might be looking at them but because the windows are opaque, the prisoner can never actually know, in fact, if the guard is ever looking at them. So what the prisoner does is the prisoner starts to act like the guard is always looking at them. And so what Foucault says is this, this takes a fictitious relation, somebody might be looking at me, and turns it into a real subjugation. Now I modulate my own behavior in light of the fact that somebody might be watching me. And so Foucault takes this and he generalizes it to society itself. Do we not do this? Can you think like, you know, this is something we all actively do. We moderate, <laughs> modulate our own behavior in light of somebody possibly looking at us. Internet search history. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. Right. You so like people... go on a public computer and you're like, I can't let anyone know that I'm looking up like John Cena's high school yearbook photos. Like, I need to get rid of this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that was why that was why it was uh, people threw such a stink when it first came out that Google was saving people search histories for whatever six months. You know what I mean? Because you think like, OK, I'm typing some, some shit up in here. Nobody knows it but me. <laughs> if there, I really want that to be a thing. Like I think it would be disastrous. But like if everybody's Google search history was like released simultaneously, you could just like look up somebody's and just like a like a whole list of just this weird stream of consciousness. This is actually this is actually the premise for um, a really good limited series comic book by Brian Vaughn called Private Eye. If you look it up online, you can get it. It's like a name your own price for each issue so it ends up being really cheap but the whole idea behind private eye it's like it takes place in the near future and uh the cloud burst mm. so everybody's personal information just became available anything cloud-based yeah. just anything at all became instantly available to everybody it's like gonna happen eventually so what they did was they like. just got rid of the internet <laughs> Interesting. And so in this world, like everybody wears masks because everybody wants to be totally anonymous. So if you're in, if you're in public at all, you have to be masked. It's really good. It's this really interesting. So cool. Yeah, isn't that neat? <laughs> I'm writing this down. So wow. that just uh, is a little bit of an introduction to the philosophical idea of the look. And uh, while I said that this originated with Husserl, you can find other places where it probably originated. I mean, Hegel has a little bit of it too. But one of the important spots of origination for this concept is with W.E.B. Du Bois, and we will talk about him when we return. We'll be right back. We're back, and Val is going to tell us a little bit about other modalities of the look. So why don't you take it away, Val? So for I guess for this podcast, we're focusing on the male, white, and straight gaze, like as separate things. Um, but the one I'm going to focus on right now is the white gaze. So like this is kind of articulated by W.E.D. Boys, and he like starts off like this one um, 
he starts off by like explaining why he kind of thought about it. So the story he tells is, I was a little thing in a wee wooden schoolhouse, something. Oh, sorry. I was a wee little thing. And so he was at school and something put it into the boys and girls heads to buy gorgeous visiting cards. I'm not sure what those are, but, you know, like, um, I mean, I'm not entirely sure, but I always thought it was like an analog of, uh, did you ever have like Valentine's Day cards when you were elementary school? Mm -hmm. Like, I think it was like some kind of early analog of that. Yeah, because they exchange it. And so, you know, he mentions that the exchange was Mary until one girl refused his card, but she didn't like say anything about it. She just did it with a glance. And so like it then like there was like a realization that he knew and it was like that he I was different from the others and shout out from their world by a vast veil. So it was just talking about how, like he knew he was just different, and that led to not not him being self conscious, but doubly conscious. So um, it's built the conscious of the consciousness of his understanding of himself in two ways. Which it was the first one was him being himself, like how he understood his self to be, and then the second is how other people saw him. Well, particularly the tall newcomer, the white yeah, girl. Yeah, the white girl. And it, you know, that kind of thing just kind of leads to like inner turmoil because his existence is seen as like a dichotomous thing because of racism. Um, so like he understood himself as, you know, to be an American who is shaped by the black experiences, but other racist white people would see him as black, you know, so that would bring in like stereotypes and negative connotations with it. So like he would be like, that would include by, uh, uh, black people being violent, monsters, delinquents, the list goes on. And it's just like this weird notion where you know you just can't reconcile your two, that those two things because you see yourself in two ways and it just, it's, it sucks to see yourself in that way because it's just, you don't know what to do with yourself and they're like, he describes it as unreconciled things and ideals at war. So it's like your existence itself is just contradictory in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, he mentions that his goal wasn't to bleach his black soul or Africanize America because they both have value, but to be allowed to be both without being too white for black people or too black for white people. So with that, being too being too white for black people would mean like he was a traitor to mm-hmm. peers, and being too black for white people just meant that he was excluded from so many things. Mm-hmm. And I think that just brings in with a lot of just stereotypes like that kind of sucks to see yourself in a way that other people see you and mm-hmm. then you internalize that and sometimes you even like so there was okay so i'm mexican there was this one show um on george lopez and at some point they deal with racism and the the, the mom she's a she's a delinquent um or like she's committed a lot of crimes she doesn't get copyright but she's committed a lot of crimes and at some point um a racist neighbor moves in and he puts on uh, a statue outside of his yard of a sleeping Mexican under like next to a cactus tree or something. The point is he was a sleeping Mexican and the mom was like, we should go destroy it. And um, so, and George Lopez, he was like, oh, mom, we can, but then he ends up changing his mind. And um, so they like plan to break it, break it at night at like 11 p.m. or something, and then the, um, the mom comes in the next morning, he's like, George, I fell asleep. Oh my gosh, I am a sleeping Mexican, but it's not, you, everybody sleeps at 11 p.m. Or like, well, not everybody, but it's normal to sleep <laughs> at do. a late time. Yeah. 
surrounded by young people. I think I'm the only one here that sleeps by 11 p.m. Me too. Yeah. And, um, you know, Franz Fanon develops this further. George Yancey develops it further. And their point, Yancey calls this ontological violence. Mm-hmm. It's like it's no small thing. You know, for the existentialist, how you are is how other people understand you. But it's not a big deal. You know what I mean? I'm only courageous if I do courageous acts and people recognize those. But for Yancey and Fanon, this is way beyond that. Way, way, way worse. Mm-hmm. Fanon, in a, a chapter from Black Bodies, White Masks, uh, the fact of blackness in it, he, he recounts this uh, moment when he was on a train and this young child like sees him and yells an alarm. Right. And the mom's like or the little the little boy is like, Mom, there's a black man. I'm scared. Mm-hmm. And so what this did for Fanon, this just really messed him up. Right. He was like, this kid thinks I'm a monster. Like he thinks I'm an actual monster and I am just me. So, yeah, it's that kind of idea where mm-hmm. you just kind of you don't know what to do with yourself because you're you're pulled apart by these two different things while you're just trying to be yourself. And I think that's like a unique experiences to like uh, people of color in particular, because you, you want to be yourself, but you don't want to be seen as a traitor to one to one group. But also you just can't fit in with the other mm-hmm. group because they do not understand the whole concept of who you are. So you your identity is broken into different things. And that's kind of really harmful. So, mm-hmm. for example, me being Mexican, um, uh, there's been jokes made. It's like, oh, you really, you really must like cleaning, and I'm just like, ah, oh, no thanks. And I do, but like, me, just me, because I like being clean, and I'm allowed to like like cleaning because I am a clean human being, yeah. not yeah. because of any stereotypes. <laughs> Hi- hygiene isn't racial. Yeah, <laughs> but it's just like ah, oh, shit. And then, then me being in the what I like the business world so like for my accounting major it's like I see myself but then I see white people older southern in suits and they see me and I wonder what they're thinking mm-hmm. because for the most part I I you know I dress like I want to but it's never like oh like some nice slacks some like a nice blouse it's more like just t-shirts some shorts or like overalls and in the business world that's not really seen as professional but to like older white rich people it's more like do you see me as like criminal do you see me as like a she just got here because she's just here for like something else that doesn't deserve mm-hmm. to be here and then on the mexican side of that it's like oh are you you're so white because you go to a, like a liberal arts college oh you're a <laughs> philosophy minor or like whatever that's <laughs> like ah so so there's that okay that's good. like you don't want to you don't like enforce a stereotype but like even if it's something that you actually like, yeah. you like can't fully embrace it because someone's gonna be like, "See, I knew it." Yeah, it's like like when women, like like when I like sometimes I really like to wear makeup, like mm-hmm. not all the time, but sometimes I'm like, "Yeah, I'm like I'm gonna sit down, beat my face for like hour and a half, <laughs> and I'm gonna look damn good today." And then I go out, and I'm like, "What if like?" And I feel almost hypocritical mm-hmm. for like doing that and. Like, yeah. what are you telling other girls to do? Yeah, you know? like, I don't want someone else, like, I've done that, like, where, like, once a week or something, I'll go out and look nice, and, like, one of my friends is like, mm-hmm. oh, like, you look so good today, I feel like shit, and I'm like, what, like, ah, like, that's not what I, that's not what I meant, or, like, yeah. a guy will be like, oh, like, you look good today, like, do you have a date or something? I'm like, I had a date with myself this morning <laughs> when I put my makeup on, but, but, yeah, that, that, like, the way that you exist tells people things about mm-hmm. you that you aren't even trying to communicate. Yeah. And you're like, 
Yeah. So this pattern of, you know, somebody looking at us from a different group with a, uh, the imposition of stereotypes and the production of double consciousness just isn't re uh, limited to race only, but also to. Yeah. To being LGBT. But I think um, for this one, I kind of want to talk more about like the importance of like shifting that gaze to be something else. So instead of like the predominant gaze being, you know, like straight, we can also use we can also be like use that same gaze idea and like have people of color i mean sorry uh people in the lgbt community like represent themselves mm -hmm. and that's because that affects how how people other people see us so for example representation is to allow people to control their own narrative and shift the gaze and st and stereotypes to recognize and see humanity in minority groups so it's basically just rec uh, rec uh, recognizing that we have different experiences but we're still mm -hmm. people i guess mm -hmm. So, and the example of this was Love, Simon. Um, the, so it's a movie about a, <laughs> sorry. I, no, you're good. Okay, it's a movie about um, a high schooler, gay man, boy, um, coming out to his community. And a director himself is gay, and he wanted to, he really wanted to be a part of this because um, the impact he had was like subtle, but it was important for the film to have like uh, genuine dialogue and um, there was one article that mentioned he made a number of on-screen moments authentic to the experience of being a closeted teen because of his experience um, that were similar to the main character like you know the default is being straight so you have to come out and it's important how you represent that because then you know it kind of explains why certain th like you know x is wrong but y is right but z is kind of gray areas so mm -hmm. it's basically just trying to like uh, dispel stereotypes and um, forcing you to see other thi ways and things in other ways. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I don't know. All right. Well, good. So, uh, when we come back, Aaron is going to tell us about another modality of the gaze, the male gaze. We'll be right back. back and you are listening to corrupting the youth we've been talking today about the philosophical concept of the look aaron is going to tell us a little bit about another modality of the look the male gaze so why don't you take it away aaron Alrighty. so yes i will be talking about the male gaze as uh, laura mulvey explains it so the male gaze according to laura mulvey is the production and projection of the male ego's fantasy image of a perfect passive thing embodied by the female form that is woman as a spectacle a beautiful thing whose purpose is to be looked at and just be passive um, so mulvey argues that films provide the perfect medium for producing and repeating this false imagery because of the ability to manipulate each camera shot and angle the actors physically and in post-production the editing and splicing to create symbolic meaning uh, she argues that 
women are also a tool in cinema in the way that they're represented and in the way that their actions are manipulated in order to give this underlying narrative. So women in film function on two levels as the erotic object for the characters and the erotic object for the audience. So these functions go hand in hand, but they serve slightly different purposes. The former is a function for the story itself in order to give cause for the actions of other characters. And the latter is a function of aesthetic pleasure for the spectators. So because the film industry is dominated by men in every field, the male gaze has steered film in this one traditional direction, um, the characteristics being as such. So first of all, uh, being that a man is in control of the narrative and the story being told, we're given this world from a male, a male character's point of view. And therefore, we're going to be sympathetic to him and his experiences because we're meant to connect with the character whose point of view we're put in. Uh, and then we are introduced to the female figure. That is the female as he sees her aka aesthetically pleasing, isolated, on display for him, and sexualized. So she's given to us not as a character who can drive the plot, but a necessary prop that the man's story needs so that the audience can identify with his desire to win her and to exert his power and control over his own world. So here's where Mulvey's fascinating psychoanalytic explanation comes into play. Um, she argues that the male gaze is a product of the male's unconscious, and this is known as the castration complex based on um, Freudian psychology. So I'm actually going to read an excerpt um, from, what is it, from dot, dot, dot. Uh, visual and other pleasures. Um, so, quote, in psychoanalytic terms, the female figure poses a deeper problem. She connotes something that the look continually circles around but disavows, her lack of a penis, implying a threat of castration and hence unpleasure. Ultimately, the meaning of woman is sexual difference, the absence of the penis as visually ascertainable, the material evidence on which is based on the castration, is based the castration complex, essential for the organization of entrance to the symbolic order and the law of the father. Thus, the woman is the woman as icon displayed for the gaze and enjoyment of men, the active controllers of the look, always threatens to evoke the anxiety it originally signified. Um, and the male unconscious has two avenues of, avenues of escape from this castration anxiety. One, preoccupation with the reenactment of the original trauma, i.e. investigating the woman and demystifying her mystery. And two, which is counterbalanced, um, it is count counterbalanced by the devaluation, the punishment or saving of the guilty object, the woman. Or else it's complete disavowal of castration by the substitution of a fetish object or turning the represented figure itself into a fetish so that it becomes reassuring rather than dangerous. So yeah, it's this, do you think we can translate that into non-Freudian terms? Like, I mean, we can still think that this is going on without necessarily thinking it's because men have an Oedipal complex or women have an electric complex. Like, is it, can you translate this into non-Freudian terms? So I think it's that women are these mysterious things and that 
there's um it's this scary fear of the unknown basically i think is what it is that's what i'm kind of taking from it uh this fear that there is something out there that is different because it looks different and therefore we need to as a man you need to identify with them your idea of what it is um and this is often a skewed idea because if you don't ask about the woman you can't know about the woman is based on assumptions and just talking to other men about what they think and that promotes this idea this wrong idea um does that make any sense yeah i want to <laughs> i want to push it a little bit further though so we can also think about it like this i think insofar as the world as western culture is patriarchal the only way it can stay patriarchal is if the woman is othered mm-hmm. right yeah but women are women are not objects women are subjects right with just as much right to figure out what we should do as anybody but in order to keep patriarchy going we have to ignore that part of women or we have to make it invisible So in this sense, women present an object of danger, not because of castration, I think, but because of the overturning of a patriarchal order. Mm, Right. Mm -hmm. So in this case, so what do we do? We put women in film, we represent them. We uh, in all my classes, I usually end up showing at some point killing us softly uh, to think about the image of women in advertising. So women are depicted everywhere as object. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about film, a woman is nothing but a sexual fetish object. Most of the time with the elevator, the camera elevator look that starts at the top and goes to the bottom or starts at the shoes and, and runs up to the top. That's that's more kind of. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. It's just bombarding women with what a a woman should be. Mm -hmm. Um, Exactly. Exactly. And sometimes when I do have students do presentations uh, on a a presentation that I call problematic things, where you have to take something that you really enjoy and, and, and show the ways that it's problematic for one reason or another. And the couple times that I get uh, women in sororities that do it, one of the first things they say is in my handbook, it says you need to be an ideal woman. As a woman in a sorority, this is very true. I really wanted to do mine on on sorority. I think I ended up doing it on the office, but um, you did one of them <laughs> on makeup. Yeah, I did one on makeup and in the women and gender class, and then yeah, I did right. yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. the office and the philosophy yeah. of race class. Um, but yeah, like it's all it's this whole thing of like holding yourself to an ideal. It's like we will be honorable. Like we need to uphold like these values. A lot of them are based in Christianity. All and, of like, which eliminate your agency. Yeah, but under and like I love my sorority, like I love my sisters, but I think that it is a problematic thing that needs to be unpacked. Like it's a sort of cast under this rhetoric of empowerment and sisterhood, which like sometimes is legitimate and sometimes is oppressive. It's a double edged sword. Where it's like, yeah, you're getting a community of like minded women, but are we like minded for the right reasons? What are some of like the weirdest sorority rules in terms of like trying to form the image of an ideal woman, I mean, just an like, objectified woman? Um, your social media is totally monitored. Um, like for real? Oh well, yeah, yeah. There's people like who their position, and this is every sorority and fraternity apparently, but no. Um, well, they where, need it. Like you can't post like obviously you can't like post videos or pictures of like you drinking alcohol and like that also goes with our school like having alcohol policies but like even if like over the summer and you're 21 
technically like I wouldn't be allowed to post a video of a picture of like me drinking glass of wine with my dad even though I'm 21 even if I'm not on campus or anywhere around there um That's and it's wild. like we're all drinking anyway so what's it <laughs> but um and then even if there's no alcohol present if like you just post like a what would be sexistly called a slutty picture or something on Instagram or something like that of like like a booty pic or just like a ooh feeling myself in like a like a bikini but it, that's another thing is it really depends on what girl it is because if it's one of the like high upper echelon pretty girls who's like yeah like I'm on the beach like reading a book like that's one thing but if it's one of the girls that has a reputation of going out and partying and they post a picture it's like oh my god I can't believe that and like there, we have an account that will like it'll like or comment on your uh, your post. And if you get it from that account, you know that you have to delete it. Oh, wow. What? Yeah. Wow. It's a whole ass thing. Is it, are they like coded or something? Like, oh, you look really nice, but it's like, oh, you look really nice. Take that I don't want to reveal oh my God. too many identities or too many things. I also okay. don't want to break ritual. That's a whole other thing. Wow. You're like actually sworn to secrecy about a whole lot of things, which is like cool. Cause I, like I'm literally in the secret society. I like, can't tell you stuff or I'll get like kicked out. And then I'm like, ooh, I get why people are into this. Yeah, that's exactly how every secret society starts. <laughs> Literally, it's like we're gonna give you a special thing. But yeah, and but a Foucauldian thing about it is that like it becomes this internalized discipline too, where it's mm-hmm. like my sisters are looking at me and expecting me to be this way, so that like I'm gonna perform and act this way, mm-hmm. so that you have that social capital and that community and also that that you have that constant fear of ostracization yeah. so it's powerful. almost like the Jeez. the prison is you know the panopticon is taken out of the prison and put in the sorority mm-hmm. i'm gonna get in trouble for this <laughs> I, mean, I mean this is what you know this is what foucault says this is one of his favorite famous lines in discipline and punishes he says is it no wonder that prisons look like hospitals that look like factories that look like schools that look like prisons mm-hmm yeah. So, like, twelve-year-old me was right when I was like, "School is a prison. I don't like this." <laughs> yeah. There's very angsty strand there. Yeah. So, what can we go? Do, does any of us have any problematic media that we would like to discuss? Like things that we really like that are definitely guilty of some form of the male gaze in one way or another, the objectification of women. I mean, the answer has got to be yes. Yeah. I mean, definitely. So, Aaron, what? Why don't you go first? All right. Um. Okay. Just a. I mean, I can't okay. say I'm so into it anymore, but, um, well, but I am, though. It's just this, uh, oh. I can't wait to hear what's coming next. Yes, come on. Um, it's, it's my love for the idea of a cowboy, you know, John <laughs> Wayne. Yeah, I know, but I think that, I think that, you know, it still stands. It is problematic. But I just, I love, I love a, a gunslinger. Oh, here it comes. Riding up on his horse. I have got his known Aaron on his for bag. four years now, and I have never heard this before. <laughs> I, I hold a lot of mysteries within me. I'm a complicated I mean, I've heard her woman. wax poetic about John Wayne before, but I did not realize this is what was underneath it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I've just, I've seen pretty much all of his movies. I would watch them every Saturday morning with my dad. It'd be great. Um, but then, you know, as I get older and Google exists, um, <laughs> just looking up John Wayne and all this stuff. And it's like, oh, no, oh, no. Oh, honey, you're racist. <laughs> Shit. Among other things. Are we surprised? Among other things. No, I mean, no. And his, his, the whole message in 
any of his films is just he is the protector he is the ideal man and he's the guy who's going to come in save the day save the town and the woman and god i love it but i hate it usually the villain usually the villain is either a like a Native American or a person oh, yes. of color or someone yeah. who's poor. Mm-hmm. So like, let's unpack. I mean, it's what's like, there to unpack? I mean, there's it's not that. It's all on the surface. Yeah. Okay, and so now it's unpacked. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Cowboys. Okay, what about you, Val? Um, easy A. So like, you know, like Olive is a smart, like English, like really w- Do you guys uh, well-read. Know easy A? No, what no, is that? Oh, can you explain it? Uh, so like, you know, the Scarlet Letter? The, yes. whole, the whole idea of like adulteress has to wear the A and so it's this whole stigma of like oh like she's a slut or whatever because yeah. she has this A she um, Emma Stone's character like pretends to be this uh, girl who or like she's this girl who like pretends to lose or, or like sleep with people that want to lose their virginity and so she gets this reputation of like sleeping around a lot and sort of like embraces it to the point where she like actually embroiders like a red a like onto her clothes <laughs> it's wild. and it's like this this whole thing where like she's doing it for like the sake of these guys like reputation so that like they aren't seen as virgins anymore and like and she's sh- also destroying her uh-huh. good girl reputation like yeah. she's being seen yeah she was like a good girl and now it's like oh like she's <laughs> She's a hoe, but she like finds it empowering in some ways. Yeah, because she like she lies, and then she has like power over these men who like, who like she kind of, she doesn't get like she get, doesn't get anything in exchange. That's like weird. Well, I mean, not weird. She doesn't get like money in exchange for lying about it. Um, she gets like um, office, what is it, office max, like gift cards or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so like it's all really funny because she just like it's just, it's a weird transaction between like fake sex and anything she like needs for like and like. At the like uh, towards the end, she's like kind of empowered because like you know like oh my gosh look at me like I haven't done anything but I know who I am but um, this is what all, they all think but then it like comes down crashing on her because then it's just like this is what they all think and nobody believes me and now I'm ostracized because oh because um, there's like a rumor that she slept with somebody's boyfriend or something oh the teacher I no think, yeah right? yeah something like that and like yeah. she ruined his reputation or something mm-hmm. oh because they got a divorce. That was it. I think it was a woman or something. The the, the wife lied about. Um, oh, because she was the one who slept with it. Spoiler alert. Yeah, yeah she's spoiler. the one who slept with the student. Yeah, but what's the her student, name? Uh huh. And uh, Emma Stone's character was ostracized because. Oh, I don't even know. It's weird. It's weird because <laughs> this is the wildest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. I have no idea what's going on. You should watch it. There's there's a lot of philosophical concepts to unpack. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, honestly, I think yeah. so. like it's definitely you can watch it. As it just being like a, a shitty movie made by men, <sighs> or to you can watch women, it for or, research, or you can research it. Yeah. But I think like the the weird thing, especially about like the male gaze and that, mm-hmm. is that like she does this and like develops this re- like reputation like pretty intentionally mm-hmm. to go against like what people think of her. Mm-hmm. But then it ends up still hurting her. But I think it the overall the movie ends on like a like it's okay because like she realizes that like what these people think about her like doesn't matter anyway but she still has to go through this like harrowing journey of like having her entire reputation destroyed before she's like oh i don't care what men think like but but she does but she, she has does. to she's blinded by it yeah because like yeah. It, it's like she oh, even yeah, in okay. opposition to it is like completely being okay. controlled by okay. it okay okay yeah, yeah that's a good one what uh what about you what's your problematic piece of media i mean there's so many um but when you asked that the first thing that popped to my head um was blue is the warmest color 
It's just oh, okay. that, uh, yeah, it's a very problematic film. And like the first time I saw it, I like hadn't read any of the things about it and been like, oh, I should really go into this with a, a less hopeful mind. But when I first saw it, I thought it was like a beautiful film. What is it? Um, and so it's about. It's a French it's, movie. It's a French movie about these two women who fall in love, um, and they have like a very complicated like tumultuous relationship like there's a lot of like anger and like kind of like abuse and on like all all sorts of different sides but it's directed by a man and there's like an eight minute long sex scene which is it's literally just porn and it's so clearly like directed by a man and then like later on the actresses came out and they were like we literally filmed that like six minute scene for like two weeks he like made them just like sleep with each other in this whole thing to be like no like it needs to be this shot even though both of them are like women who sleep with other women they had no freedom over how to direct a sex scene between two women that loved each other so like yeah that was pretty notorious and like when i first saw it i was like i was like 16 and i was like wow like love between women is so beautiful and then i was like wait this is messed up and like yeah so very problematic but I mean, I think if that sex scene had gone better and was much shorter, and also if the whole movie was directed by a woman, I would like it a lot more. I think that last one is the key. <laughs> yeah, that's the main thing. Yeah. If, that, if that had been the case, the other ones would have been. Well, let's there, see. But. My my example, I I think I'm going to stick with this. My example are revenge films. Uh, not even so much for the way that women are represented, but for they are not represented. So in any revenge film, what has to happen is some woman attached to the male protagonist has to die or suffer some form of horrible sexual assault or torture, kidnapping something. But in revenge movies, women never have any agency or a part. Their entire purpose is to make the plot of the movie go forward. Like Taken. Yeah, exactly. James Bond. Yeah, James Bond. All of these. I mean, I... John Wick is a nice exception to this. Although, is it? Did anybody see I've John never Wick? Seen it. John Wick is amazing, but really? he he goes on his killing spree because his dog dies. His dog? <laughs> yeah, it's a whole revenge oh, movie about that. a dog. Oh, but, I love it. But no, it's not. It's not quite oh. so because if you really, so his wife dies, but from like a disease. She nobody kills her. She just like dies early. But she gives him this this dog. And so this dog is like the only connection that he has so with her or whatever. Kind of so somebody kills the dog and he goes on a killing spree over oh, it. So, so it's yeah, still kind it's of still, yeah, it's still connected. Yeah. The second one, I don't, I think he just like somebody takes his car or something. I don't remember what happens in that one. And he goes and on a killing just, spree? like go to therapy. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I love those movies. Those are the movies that uh, Keanu Reeves was born, born to act in. <laughs> He's so good at them. But anyway, okay, so that's good. So when we come back, Corinna is going to tell us a little bit about the oppositional gaze as developed by Bell Hooks. And we're going to think about media that reverses the gazes that we've talked about today. So we'll be right back. We have returned. Corinne is going to tell us a little bit about the oppositional gaze as developed by Bell Hooks. Take it away, Corinne. All right. So Bell Hooks wrote this nice little essay. Um, actually, it's part of a book um, called The Oppositional Gaze. 
And I think this is a good kind of synthesis of what we've been talking about with race and gender in terms of the gaze, because Bell Hooks, um, it was a, a black woman writing. Um, is. Oh, God. I mean, She's she, alive. She's alive? Yes. Oh, my God. Why did I think she was <laughs> I'm so sorry, Bell Hooks. <laughs> Bell Hooks is alive. Oh, my God. And well. <laughs> Thank God. Okay. Woo. Yikes. Unless you're listening to this in the future, like 100 years, and then we're all dead, but you'll get the temporal context. <laughs> yeah, they, they'll understand. I'm sorry, sorry Bill Hooks. I'm sorry. That uh, was anywho. ridiculous. I'm so sorry. So the oppositional gaze is, um, it builds off of this idea of, you know, there's a lot of power in looking um, in the way that people look at us and the way that we're seen. It affects our behavior. That's a, It controls us and society and our identity. It tells us who we are. Um, Bell Hooks has a, a wonderful reputation of like being pretty. Uh, I don't. I don't know. She just. She just goes for it. Like doesn't really hold a single punch back. Just like unapologetic will say exactly um, what is right because she is right. And she talks about this idea of the oppositional gaze of um, you, like retaking um, that look to challenge the power structure that it is trying to put you in. So she as a black woman um, would be stared at by people and then like if she would look back at them they would like avert their eyes um, either and just be like oh like I don't want to look at her or they would like look back at her aggressively in some way like she describes both of both of these um, interactions in her essay and she realized like at one point she she writes this really cool thing and she says I defiantly declared not only will I stare but I want my look to change reality and I think that's really powerful of like when like a like a white man or, or a white anybody or just anybody would look at her and um, she would have that kind of like Du Bois idea of double consciousness of like they see something in me that I don't see and rather than like recoiling or like turning away in this internalized shame she would just stare back and be like no like this like I am a human like deal with it sort of thing which is just so freaking cool and okay so <laughs> and then um, this essay is a lot about um, like film specifically like representations of black women in film um, from like the golden age of cinema to when this was published I think in like the 60s 70s but she writes a lot about like when TV cinema became a really big thing. So she talks about this idea of rupture, which is when you see a character on screen that looks like you that you completely don't identify with. So like there were very, very few um, black people at all represented in film when she was growing up like and had a TV. Um, but even less black women and they would be portrayed in their stereotypical roles of like caretaker like the mammy role and um she would look at them and be like this and they would all talk about it as a family and be like this should be a moment where like yay representation but they see not only like they don't see themselves in that but the fact that this is a film is it proves to them that this is like what society at large sees and um yeah that rupture is just that the total rejection of an identity that's being put on you purely because of like what socially demographically you are which is really cool y'all should read this essay she really goes off 1992 it was 92 yeah yeah, yeah. 
I just had to look. I was curious. Myself. Okay, well, a lot of the stuff she was writing about yeah, yeah, was definitely. like, yeah, it was like that time of film. I should have known that. What? No, it's okay. I, I didn't get, sorry, I wasn't trying no, to be like, no. well, actually, correct you. No, I just, I got, I, you know, tip my fedora, you know what I mean? I'm not trying to, I wasn't trying to mansplain enough, and I just, I was curious. I actually looked it up, and it was 1992. Okay, good. So 1992. But, yeah, she writes about all these other films. She also writes about, like, um, uh, cases, like judicial cases and, and books. She writes about um, the Emmett Till case, uh, where the, like, the black boy, like, allegedly whistled at a white woman and was charged with rape mm-hmm. um even though he didn't touch and her killed. and well, then he wasn't charged he, was well, he wasn't charged he was just yeah he was just kidnapped and beaten to death um and in that case like that power of the the look that just the black boy looking at a white woman was considered to be such a a violation um of like her humanity that they felt empowered to murder someone um which is a like, casket is that um that new museum in Washington D.C. Really, the Smithsonian. Yeah, it's really, it's really powerful. I need to go there. Yeah, it's wild. Um, yeah, so she. Yeah, I like that she kind of flips the power structure to mm-hmm. be like, yeah, like sure, this is messed up how this looking controls our identity and our behavior, but like she kind of was like, I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna push against that. Yeah. Can you think of um, any examples of media that does reverse the gaze? So like, you know, we've talked about what the what the look is or what the gaze m- means philosophically. We've looked at different modalities of it. We looked at different examples of it. Now, can we think of examples that reverse the gaze? So I'm, I'm gonna go first. So my example is a song by the rapper Vince Staples, Lift Me Up. And this song is, I think basically, about the idea where he's just trying to tell us that he sees our white gaze, right? I'm a white man, he sees my white gaze and he's trying to show me that he sees it. So I feel like this is a kind of reversal. So one of the first lines in the song is, uh, he says, look, I feel like Mick and Richards, they feel like muddy waters, now tell me what's the difference. So in that line, he's saying like, look, I feel like a rock star, I feel like Mick, I always forget their names in the Rolling Stones, (laughs) Keith Richards, right? I I feel like these guys, I I feel like these total, badass rock stars but when white people look at me they don't see that they can only see what they think is a black star and they see muddy waters but that's not me and the fact that i'm saying it means i see you Mm. seeing me like this there's another line later in the song where he says uh an uber uber driver uh car pulls up uber driver in the cockpit looks like jeffrey dahmer uh, but he's looking at me crazy when we pull up to the projects. You know what I mean? So like he's even there again, kind of reversing that gaze. I think the whole song is like this. Uh, pretty much, there's a couple bars where that's not really going on. But for the most part, it's all a kind of pair of what he thinks of himself and what somebody else sees, right? So that's my example of, of uh, reversing the gaze in a certain sense. Does anybody want to jump in with an example? Yeah, there's this... There's this movie, um, and I don't know why I didn't think about it before, but I think it's, uh, could you look this up? Actually, it's either called I'm Not an Easy Man or I'm Not an Easy Woman. I think it's I'm Not an Easy Man. But the concept of it is that this guy hits his head. He's like a total yes, misogynist. Yes, I am not an easy man. I'm not an easy man. Uh, he's this total misogynist, just not a cool guy. He hits his head, gets knocked out, wakes up in a parallel universe, in which the entire world is constituted on the basis of a matriarchy rather than a patriarchy. So all of the men 
are like work to be to seek the approval of women so like women will just like talk over and like woman-splain things to men and just be like like and be like like why do you look like this like like really like didn't you want to like dress up for me and he's like what is going on like it's fantastic i think it's french it's in a different language french yeah Yeah, it's french like here with all these french films i'm (laughs) cultured yeah look at you so cultured (laughs) but it's absolutely hilarious it it literally flips that on its head that's a good one yeah it's great watch it now val you mentioned one in your segment love simon was that kind of a reversal of the the straight gaze, something like that, or no? It was just a good form of representation. Yeah, so that wouldn't really it. count as an example. But I think what, mine is kind of like how how white people see it, like see certain things, um, in terms of like how you see even our like our struggles. And I'm not saying like just mine is mm-hmm. Mexican, but like everybody is POC, mm-hmm. because there was this one thing, um, this one. I don't know if it was a tweet. I think it was on Facebook, and it, uh, it's by some woman named Wait. Uh, I don't know if I should, I'm not gonna name her. Anyways, and it says, Dear white woman, I'm tired of hearing you say, I'm shocked, I can't believe this, I had no idea, this can't be real, because you don't you don't see it. But that, just because mm-hmm. you don't see it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. And then she goes on to say, This is an actuality wildly offensive, that our pain is so far off your radar that the mention of it shocks you. It's actually hurtful to know that the news that's been keeping me up at night hasn't even been a topic of conversation in your world. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, this would definitely be like a, a reversal of the gaze, you know, George Yancey is doing this in his editorial, Dear White America, or in his latest book, Backlash. That's what he's thinking. He's like, look, I'm going to tell you what's going on here. I'm reversing that gaze. Yeah, that's good. Aaron, you got anything? Yeah. I'm going to bring up Broad City. Oh, yeah, good. That show (laughs) is fantastic in every way. Um, It just shows this authentic female friendship and just these two best friends living their lives in New York City. Um, And obviously, it's super over dramatic and just like they get into the craziest like unbelievable Wildest situations, situations yeah. but i think it's it just it presents this fun like just true representation of like mm-hmm. what a friendship is it's not like caddy trying to get ahead or anything like that like neither of these friends are trying to get a leg up on the other it's just they support each other fully mm-hmm. and like yeah, it's. Great. And I think their writers' room is entirely women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like Woo. the like the the Bechdel test, mm-hmm. whatever that is, like mm-hmm. where like in a in a movie or film, like is there a woman a character? Woman. Does she speak? Does she have a name? Does she um, speak to another woman? When they do speak, what do they talk about? Do they speak for more than three minutes? Mm-hmm. If they speak for more than three minutes, do, are they speaking about men the whole time? Mm-hmm. If not. And they actually speak about other things like, mm-hmm. I don't know, their careers or like each other mm-hmm. or like anything but a man. Um, and also like if they're genuine friends, they never gossip about mm-hmm. each other, like that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It It is the epitome of the reversal of the reverse of the back of the back of the back of the city. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Well, these are good examples. So that's our episode for, uh, I don't know, I was going to say this week, but we don't do this weekly. So that temporal designation <laughs> makes it. zero sense. <laughs> Time isn't real. Uh, but yeah, we'll be back at some point and we'll be talking about something and we hope <laughs> that you join us. Adios. All right, later. <laughs>